Welcome to the Ask Philip podcast. Today, Philip tackles your questions such as, why are you so optimistic about the future? What does risk versus reward mean? Why has the NASDAQ hit new highs, but the S&P has yet to? Should I be worried if I have a pension plan? Plus, a money-saving interview with energy systems design engineer, Michael Brown. And now, here's Philip. All right, we are here with another episode of Ask Philip. And so, look, y'all, this is two episodes in a row where I'm bringing you ways to get some money. Like, not just, I ain't talking about making money in the stock market. I'm talking about getting money. We had Commissioner Devin Allen on last week talking about how to get some of this CARES Act money in Tarrant County if you qualify. And now I brought the Mike Brown on, the podcaster extraordinaire, the the green energy expert, um, seriously, like his podcast has, has a wealth of knowledge. It's, it's 3P Theory. Uh, I believe it's on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, all the major platforms about how to do construction projects uh, in a green way and the benefits to to you and all that. So he's here today to talk about specifically like how to get money as a developer and help the planet. There's no downside to that in my opinion. So let's let's talk about it, Mike. Tell me more about it. And, let, and, and, you know, give your intro. Let everybody know who you are. Hopefully I got your podcast name right. Yeah, no, you, you hit it spot on. Uh, thanks for having me again today. My name is Mike Brown. I actually am a sustainability engineer and I work for a, uh, a large architecture firm uh, underneath our sustainability energy efficiency umbrella uh, for large commercial projects, a variety of different project types. Uh, we work on projects all over the United States. And really, my role is really to help um, developers, owners, and other entities realize savings through operational expenses, uh, minimizing those as well as first costs when we're trying to design projects and really implementing strategies, whether it be from an HVAC standpoint, lighting, you know, other operations internally as they start to d- design and develop the building uh, to really have a high performing building. One of the things I want to talk t- uh, to you guys today about is the 179D. Uh, which is an energy efficiency commercial building deduction that's available uh, for commercial projects. So this is actually uh, an, a really great incentive that's been around for for quite some while, quite a while. It's been around since 2006, and in many ways, it's uh, money that's left on the table for a lot of projects uh, that go through design, go through permit, uh, and ultimately get built. As we all know. You know, there's various building codes and things of that nature and minimum standards that a building should be built. Uh, and just like building standards in terms of uh, the building being structurally sound and other measures and things of that nature, there's also an energy efficiency standard that must be achieved for all new construction projects uh, and even major renovations. You know, here in Dallas, there's a lot of new infrastructure going up. You know, well, in North Texas in general, there's a lot of new infrastructure going up. And there's also a lot of existing buildings that are being retrofitted, upgraded, uh, resold, or put back into operations for another means. And so as developers uh, and even designers, as they're starting to develop these projects, uh, understanding the importance and the opportunity that 179D offers uh, is pretty important. I can explain it in two different perspectives, but I really want people to focus on thinking about it early on in the project. Uh, and so this, I'll start with the second perspective, and that's focusing on the 179D after a project has been permitted and after it's been constructed. To kind of give a definition of the 179D, it's essentially a tax incentive or a tax deduction uh, that the owner uh, and also in many cases, the designers of the building 
are able to take advantage of uh, based on the efficiency of the systems that are designed and installed. And there's kind of three different three different categories where you can quote unquote allocate these incentive or deductions from. Uh, one is HVAC, uh, so all your mechanical systems, ventilation, things of that nature. The second is lighting, and then the third is uh, envelope. So when we're talking about the skin of the building, insulation, uh, windows, walls, roof, things of that nature. And so in each of those buckets or categories, you can achieve up to 60 cents per square foot uh, of the building area to allocate towards that annual deduction uh, for your taxes. And so when you combine all three of those, that's $1.80 on your cap that you can take for your building. And so in each of those categories, there's a minimum savings that must must be achieved. In many cases, at least a 10% savings on whatever that code minimum is. And in many cases, for a lot of the projects that are being designed today, uh, whether they realize it or not, especially due to uh, you know the emergence of LED lighting and efficient, efficient lighting on projects, especially on new construction side, um, this is something that's almost a given on a lot of projects, um, which is kind of a no-brainer and, and almost by default something that projects could take advantage of uh, right, straight out of the gate. When we look at HVAC and we look at service hot water heating or domestic hot water, uh, those are a little bit more strategic, uh, but there could be an opportunity for projects to take advantage of that as well. Uh, but essentially, you know, within each of those three buckets, the engineer or the consultant on that particular project uh, will basically, and this is kind of walking you through that process, um, they'll communicate with the owner about the opportunity. If this is something that they want to pursue, then they'll get an allocation letter. Uh, to be able to investigate or basically do a, a due diligence on what the potential savings could be for a project. Uh, and typically that's done through energy modeling, uh, which is a, uh, a process of doing an energy simulation computer software for all the building components. And then in each of those three buckets, analyzing what is your savings compared to that code minimum from an energy efficiency standpoint. So let me let me hop in here for layman's terms. So let's let's <laughs> let's say let's say I'm a developer and I'm like, listen, Mike, I, I hear what you're saying. Is this gonna cost me more money or less money net of my tax savings? It's gonna cost you less. Got it. So so I get a better product that I build for my client or myself if I'm owning it, uh, and the government's helping me pay for it because it's in the government's best interest to have an energy efficient place for a whole host of reasons. Correct. Right. Got it. Okay. Keep, keep going. I just wanted to make sure. Cause... <laughs> and, so, and so the way that, that's a good question though, because the way that this uh, can be structured is kind of two different ways. And one of the amendments that occurred last year for this particular tax deduction is that now, you know, those designers or entities that are helping uh, develop or install this equipment on projects are able to even do allocations for government-owned facilities and schools. Before, that was not the case. Uh, so in that situation, that allocation goes directly to, obviously with the, the agreement of the owner, uh, the allocation goes directly to the designers. So that could be, so under envelope, that would be the architect. And under lighting and under HVAC, that would be the MEP engineer, the mechanical electrical plumbing engineer for that project. So now this even incentivized them to design a better product because they know that they'll get kicked back on that as well. Mm-hmm. So it's a, it's a shared, uh, it's a shared savings or a shared incentive for both the owner and the, and the, uh, and the project team. And so. And one, and one it, more thing, sorry, sorry to keep interrupting, but I keep thinking, what are people okay. thinking? I don't fully know 
but like what what is the and I know some people don't a lot of folks don't know what is the benefit to cities and states and governments for having energy efficient like why why do they care so much about making things energy efficient yeah that's a, that's a great question because uh, that allows us to zoom zoom out and think big picture right so ultimately it's the benefit of the cities and especially the utility companies to incentivize new buildings and also retrofit projects to be more energy efficient because that's less energy demand, less water demand, which means they're able to save money on the front end and or delay having to enlarge or increase the size of their infrastructure to accommodate for that demand. So what that means is you're bringing more buildings online. That means the power plants are going to have to increase increase their capacity, right? The utility companies. So by incentivizing people to focus on energy efficiency, that allows them to have kind of a deferred growth, which that's a savings for them, uh, and or uh, minimize growth, period, as new buildings come online. Mm-hmm. Um, so they're basically sharing that savings or sharing the money up front if projects achieve that those those thresholds that have been set forth. Got it. Uh, and ultimately, I mean, if you think about it from a from a, a, a green or pl- green planet uh, sustainability standpoint, I mean, obviously you're lowering CO2 emissions. Uh, buildings represent about 40 percent of the CO2 emissions uh, globally. Uh, so it's a big portion. It's a, a huge opportunity as we focus on commercial real estate to be able to minimize that. Okay. And um, so one of the things I want to do is walk you through a quick case study to understand that process. So as I mentioned before, one of the new things that have that one of the new things that has emerged with the the addendum from last year is that those particular designers can do an allocation for you know state-owned, city-owned, federal projects or government projects. And so imagine if there was a, a university or a small college, if you will, that's maybe building some new dormitories, building up um, some new uh, facilities for labs, things of that nature. And say of those three buildings, the total square footage is 250,000 square feet. And whoever is developing, say, MEP X and you know architecture A are designing these projects. And as they're designing their projects, they're, they're thinking about the energy efficiency measures that not only could meet the threshold, but maybe even exceed the threshold for capturing those savings in those three buckets that I mentioned before. Mm-hmm. So they'll design the building in a way that they can capture that. And once they get to submitting for their permit, the building gets built and that allocation letter that's been provided by the owner to, for them to take on that allocation or deductions on their behalf is then coordinated. Typically, there's a CPA or attorney that's involved in this process as well to make sure they you know, dot all the I's and cross all their T's uh, for that paperwork process. But also during this process, they have you know, some calculations that are done. Again, that energy model where they're saying, OK, well, you know, how much above that percentage are we achieving in terms of energy efficiency to be able to claim whatever that deduction is going to be. Yeah, but it, and is a deduction based on like, as long as you meet it, you get X amount of dollars or the better you meet it, you get more money? The better you, you do compared to the minimum, you get a little bit more, mm-hmm. uh, but the cap is the, the 60, 60 cents a square foot Okay, but, okay. for each of the categories. Got it. Yeah. And so what that means is, say if we submitted for this project 250,000 square feet of like three or four buildings, 
uh, and they you know met the threshold for 60 cents in each of those categories. So that means they're going to be able to take uh, $450,000 for their deduction that year uh, for those three projects combined. Nice. Now, what can happen is there could be Every company does this a little bit differently, but there could be uh, a percentage that is given back to that entity, uh, whether it's a university or a school or, or, or something of that nature, to say, okay, Mr. Engineer, Mr. Architect, since I've allowed you to take this much, we want to get you know 50% of that back or whatever percentage agreement that they, they decide that, that that's going to be. So again, shared savings, um, and then they get a better product as well. Let's go back. So let's say you're the developer. I'm the owner. We save 450 grand, um, which which might mean let's say we save, you know, 150 grand in taxes because um, we get the deduction. I mean, uh, so we get a deduction of 400 grand. We save 150 grand in taxes. Are you are you you're saying we will split the the deduction or we'll split the tax savings or what 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 are we splitting? With the you're splitting the tax savings. Okay. So basically, let's just say if it was a, you know, a fifty-fifty split between the uh, the architect and the engineer, right? Mm-hmm. So two two twenty-five goes to the architect, two twenty-five goes to the engineer. So that's split down the middle. Now, an agreement that had maybe been made beforehand says that of that two twenty-five, each of those entities would give some of that back to the owner, Got right? It. Because they're the ones that signed off on the allocation letter to even allow them to do that. Got it. Um, because they could have just said no, don't worry about it, you know. And then they they could they could still design the building to be energy efficient, things of that nature. They'll save on you energy savings, utility savings. But when it comes to that tax deduction, they wouldn't be able to receive that. So so it's shared between everybody. Not not each person gets sixty cents right. per square feet. Okay, got it. Just wanted right. to make sure. And so with that too, I'm glad you asked that question because on projects where, so I'll give you that other scenario where it's not a state or government owned facility. Uh, let's just say, you know, there's a high rise here in downtown. So it's, it's, it's got one developer or owner on that project. Uh, it's privately owned. So in that scenario, there's not a allocation letter to the designers on the, that project. The allocation letter is then submitted on behalf of just the owner. Now, the consultants can put together an agreement. It can either be in the form of a fee up front uh, as a percentage of what what uh, is saved on the allocation or just a flat rate to be able to do those services. And then the owner would get that full amount, if that makes sense, mm-hmm. the full 450 in that case. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that's another structure as well. So there, again, there's, there's, two, there's two pathways. If you've got a government or own, government-owned or state-owned facility, there's that path where you have to have an allocation letter that goes to the consultants. And then on the private side, it goes directly to the owner but the consultants could still get some kind of a kickback from that because they are offering services to be able to, to, to capture it, right? Got it. One of the things about that is I, I see a lot of projects that come through the pipeline, you know, whether it's projects I work on day to day and even projects that I, I, I work on in partnership with uh, another firm to help them with some of this stuff as well on energy efficiency and, and doing modeling and things of that nature is that um, this is money that's left on the table uh, a lot of times because developers and owners just don't know about it. And so I think there's an obligation, I feel, for designers, whether it's an architect or an engineer or some other consultant, uh, they have the obligation to at least ask the owner or talk to the owner about this this type of incentive, to be honest. 
even if it's, if it's something that they know they're going to take advantage of later on, uh, they can at least be helping them design to maximize the opportunity for that on the on the front side, mm-hmm. if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's, it's being more proactive. Um, and I look, that's, that's the best way to, to think about it. No, no, it, it, it makes sense. And I, and I think about it in a, in a world where, um, uh, you know, governments are going to start printing money at a ridiculous rate, more ridiculous than where they are right now, which means the value of your money goes down. And so you, you, you tend to have the price of things are higher, right? Because the value goes down, so it costs more to buy things, right? A big one is energy, right? Energy is a, a big line item for a lot of businesses and people. And so uh, being energy efficient right now when energy prices are relatively low before the money printing starts is is wise because once they start printing, um, it's going to get very likely really ridiculous. So, I mean, that's that was one thing that intrigued me about it was I was like, hey, people are not worried about it right now because energy costs are relatively low, you know, but you got to be thinking three, four, five years from now because uh, these printing presses are going – like these politicians are not going to let deflation happen. They're going to print money like it's monopoly money. Side note, did, did, did you know like in monopoly when you run out of money, you can just create more money by writing down like more money? I didn't even know that. I never played to where uh, – In the real game? In the what? real game, yeah. Like I oh, was, wow. Yeah, somebody said in the podcast, and I was like, let me go look at it. And I was like, I was like oh, you, you can. I've, ne- I've never got to the point where we run out of money, but they say, yeah, once you run out of money – you can like just write down amounts of money. I was like, oh, this is like real world. This is literally what central banks wow. do. <laughs> <laughs> I'm about to use that tactic the next time I play. So yeah, I'm about to that up. Those would be long games. Those are games that last like four or five hours when you're out of money. Go ahead, man. I, I, I interrupted you like four or five times. I just want people to be aware uh, of the opportunity. And, you know, really at the end of the day, by pursuing incentives like this, and there's there's, there's tons of other incentives as well, which – you know, just kind of reiterating what I mentioned before, if, if any project over 50,000 square feet is being constructed and that design team or whatever entity consultant, $100,000 in incentive for that owner, they're doing them a disservice because the money is out there. Uh, I always compare, compare this. I'm not saying it's easy um, because and that's a, more of a reason why you want to hire consultants that have experience doing that mm-hmm. and going through their process so you don't have uh, have all that heartache and headache. But I always always compare it to, to to scholarships, you know, like a student applying for scholarships for college. You know, a, a lot of that money is out there. You just have to apply for it um, and be strategic about it. Right. Mm-hmm. And so whether it's in the form of tax deductions, upfront money. Uh, especially when you talk about some of these retrofits, there's a lot of um, companies out there too that do what's called performance contracting, uh, which I mean we could talk about in another session. But essentially, those companies front the money for upgrades to your building, and you pay it back on the savings that it's that that's that's being achieved every single month on your utility bills. Hmm. So think about it as a kind of extended loan, if you will. And uh, obviously, there's a little bit of interest built built into that as well, but you're paying that back through the savings of the upgrade as opposed to you taking out traditional bank loan uh, that may be at a higher interest rate. Um, and there may be other stipulations and with, with it becoming more challenging to be, to get loans, to be able to do things like that, I think it's going to become even more important that uh, owners look at strategies like this. So if an owner saying, cool, I, I definitely, you know, I like this idea. Like where do I start? Who do they reach out to like a company like yours? 
you like what's the what's the first step in figuring all this out? Because I've you know, I know a lot. I know a couple of developers and people who own. They're gonna be like, listen, I heard what you guys said. I don't have a clue what you just said, but I know I want to <laughs> save some money. Where do I start? Yeah, I mean, they, they can reach out to myself, um, and so uh, and I can get them in the right point them in the right direction. I work with a lot of uh, partnering uh, engineering firms, consultants. Um, that I've, I've worked with to, to be able to do this or they've done it on their own uh, and they have huge portfolios of projects. Uh, the largest project that I've done to date, which they're still trying to wrap up the documentation on, uh, was just under a quarter million dollars for uh, incentives. Um, and so I think it was like maybe 220, 210,000 or something like that um, that they're able to capture. And so depending on where that project is located as well, those incentives will def- will uh, be be different as well. Mm-hmm. Um, it could they co- could come from the state, they could come from the utility. Uh, there could be a grant program, an opportunity. Um, one of the ones that we've done that's for nonprofits, which by the way, just to put a caveat to the 179D, uh, nonprofits cannot pursue this. So if it's a church or if it's a you know boys and girls club, something of that nature, uh, they wouldn't be able to pursue that. So it is for you know uh, commercial. Uh, projects, private or government owned, you know, even for, you know, these nonprofits out here that are trying to do upgrades to their buildings, things of that nature, and even projects that may want to pursue renewable energy, like uh, solar production or solar PVs in the roof. Uh, there's money out there for that, that can significantly reduce the first costs, um, as opposed for them having to take out that entire loan. Uh, one of them that I know of that I worked with a couple of times before is called the Green Mountain Energy Sun Club grant. Mm-hmm. And with that program, you could do a variety of uh, energy efficient measures uh, or even just green building practices uh, to implement on the project. And they, they write off checks, they write checks for it or, or grants for it. Uh, that's money that you don't have to pay back. You know, so we had a project put in a couple of um, car charging stations. Uh, I think they did solar thermal water heating for their facility. Uh, we had one that, do, that did solar PV as well. Um, you know, even if you want to implement, say, you know how those some of those offices have like a green vegetated wall when you come in in the background. Mm-hmm. Um, that that you could use that money to pay for stuff like that as well, um, because what that's doing is that's providing a better environment for the occupants. Uh, it could be teaching them, um, you know, about the environment, whether that's through uh, education programs, things of nature, especially if they're doing it for schools. Uh, they've even had vertical gardens uh, apply for the grant as well if they want to, um, you know, do urban farming or urban gardens and things of that nature. So. I don't want to say the sky is limitless, but, or the sky is the limit or it's, it's limitless, but there's a lot of opportunity and, you know, you just have to, to reach out. So lots of money. Well, Hey, I appreciate your expertise. Hey, you ought to do like a whole, like a multi-episode guide to getting money from the gut for your, for your buildings project on the podcast, like a five, five deal guide or something like that. Cause it's, it's a lot of money out there. Yeah, um, yeah. And, and I think this is the beginning of the trend. So, Thank you definitely for sharing. And we'll have your podcast link on the show notes. Uh, feel free to hang out for the rest of the podcast or or roll. Appreciate you, sir. You, you going to hang out or you going right. gonna to roll? Yeah, I'll hang out and just uh, just listen in the background, if you don't mind. Yeah, yeah, go um, ahead. That's fine. First question. Philip, why are you so optimistic about the future? Let me give you let me give you context about this, right? Because if you listen to many of my episodes over the last couple of months, it sounds like I'm super pessimistic, right? A lot of it has been the end of the world reserve currency, a new world order, uh, deflation, all this kind of stuff. 
which is, you know, in the short term, relatively negative. But here's the thing about humans. We went from back in the day where everybody was farmers all around the world to an industrialized society. And during that period of time, people thought, oh, no, like, how are we going to provide enough food and blah, 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 blah. You know, and, you know, now we have a whole lot more fat people in the world than we did back then. So food is... Food is super abundant, more abundant than it ever has been, and and lifestyles are relatively better. So we got through that. And then you look at even specific countries, you know, when Britain uh, went from the world power to no longer the world power. And there's like a really cool stat. Actually, I think I actually uh, did keep it. Let me let me pull it up and see if I could find it. But I was looking at, hey, how, you know, how was life for folks in, in Britain, you know, after they went from being the world power to not... And I don't, I'm not going to find that. I can't talk and search at the same time. But the basic thing was the actual lifestyle of regular people went up more than the cost of living over the long term after they became the world power, which I'll explain uh, after they went down from being the world power, which I'll explain later. But life was still relatively good and, and got better over time for um, people in Britain. Same you know, in the Netherlands, right? You you had a short-term pain period, but that's, that's, that's no way to avoid it. I call it like, you, you know, we all have winter, summer, spring, and fall, like you can't avoid winter, you know, but in the long term, things have gotten better for humanity, A, because we have a survival instinct, and B, technology is a big one, like technology is a big reason why um, we got from farming to the industrial age and made life better. Technology right now is the big reason why life is getting relatively better for everybody, like technology almost always ends up saving us. When we think that it's a cliff and we're about to go off the cliff, Somehow we figure out a way to make things happen for the long term and we work it through. So we've been around for a long time as humans and we continue to survive and innovate and do things. And I'm super optimistic on the long term, despite pointing out the obvious ways that in the short term you have to navigate correctly. So so being optimistic doesn't mean like you walk blindly in the short term. It means, hey, like keep your guard up. I'm I'm very confident in my sparring abilities in Muay Thai right now, but it doesn't mean that I'm going to like drop my guard if I'm sparring with somebody who don't feel threatened by. That would just be crazy. So that's that. Next question. What does risk versus reward mean? Risk versus reward. So I, I love this question because a, a lot of people when they're investing, they're only focused on the reward part. They're only focused on how do I make money? Right. What's the what's the best stock or what's the best investment or where should I put money? But they pay zero attention to risk and and they look at all of these investors, the Howard Marks, the Warren Buffett, the Stanley Druckenmiller's, the Ray Dalio's, the 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 real people who made money consistently over decades and made lots of money. Not people who over a three year period of time create a website or a course and make up stuff about how they made all these money. Like they're not long-term because of, think about it, go find me a, a, a hundred millionaire or a billionaire or a well-known investor that made their money that, that actually had, that had courses back in the day that they were selling and, and long-term like continued to compound their returns with those fake return numbers, right? Just, just know that all that, those returns they show you in these courses are just not real. It's over a year and they do, risky behavior. And once the bull market ends, they disappear and you don't hear about them anymore because they don't have any more money. Like, you don't got to believe me. Just go find me on the Forbes list. Any of those people that were selling courses 
<laughs> you know, back in the day and kept compounding their money at, at those rates. They don't exist, right? Because you can just do the math. You can say, oh, if they're getting that kind of money, then over 10 years, they've had a lot of money and there should be something written about them. It's not because the stuff is not real. Here's my point. It's not real because that kind of stuff is only focusing on returns, but the ones that are consistent and make money over time, they they are more risk averse. It's kind of like Floyd Mayweather. You know, F- Floyd Mayweather is best boxer of all time, right? I mean, he's, some people might disagree, but he, he at, at least for the time period that we're currently in, like he's the GOAT, right? We can debate Ali or whatever, but I don't think Mayweather has had any losses. So I think that's why I put him in the GOAT. Uh, Ali, Ali did... But, you know, that's it's mad respect for Ali. But he is a defensive, like, genius. Like, he, there's nobody who's better at defense than him. And that's how many great investors are. The number one on my list is not the return of my money. It's the actual return of my money, right? I did a Jay-Z right there. You, you know how he said, I'm not a businessman, I'm a businessman. You got you to replay that and listen again, right? They're not interested in, like, okay, what do I make on my money? They're like, I want to make sure before I make this investment that I'm going to actually at least get my money back. And if I could know that I'll get my money back and there's a high potential for a lot of upside if things work out right, then I want to make that investment. But if there's a, a high probability of risk of me not getting my money back, I'm not interested because I'm not I'm interested in the money I make for the given level of risk. So that means there are time periods where they just won't play. They'll be defensive. And don't play doesn't mean like cash, right? Because it's all about measuring risk. Because cash in this current environment is one of the most risky assets. So you, so understanding risk is not traditional. What people think risk is right. Risk factors in economic growth. It factors in inflation. It factors in taxes. Right. It factors in okay, what is my return after all these things that can hurt my money and, and affect it? Like, what am I likely to have five years and ten years from now with all of these risks? And then positioning your portfolio appropriately. So, and that's what a lot of investors miss. They're only focused on making money. But they're not focused on playing defense. And and what ends up happening, the reason why the the risk averse investors end up making a lot of money over time is because everybody right now, like everybody right now, when I say everybody, I'm talking about retail investors, for lack of better words, that don't understand uh true risk, they have the most risky behavior. And then you look at everybody else who knows what they're doing and been doing it for a while. Like the barstool guy, this idiot called Warren Buffett an idiot. I'm like, bro, like you got, like you have zero investing skills. Like you built the website and you're on Twitter trolling the best investor of all time. You're, you're not, you're not super smart. Like when it comes to investing, you might be smart at what you're doing at entertaining people, which is really what he's doing and building content. But you, you have zero ability to call Warren Buffett an idiot when you're buying trash companies and you made money for two months in the stock market you know, going up. And and so, but you have that happening because it happens over and over again. In late, in late 90s, Warren Buffett was called an idiot. He proved to prove everybody wrong. In the uh, late 60s, when this happened before again, they were calling the great investors at that time idiot. But I'm like, hey, listen, we'll see. Let life keep hey, keep playing out. So I've, I've gotten to rambling. But my point is, it's not just about return. It's about risk for return and being able to quantify all the risks involved in what you're doing and measure that against return. If you can't do that, then you probably shouldn't be playing the game without some help. Just my two cents. Next question. Why has the NASDAQ hit new highs, but the S&P has yet to? I actually love this question because any of y'all who've 
listened to a couple of episodes before, knowing I talk about the drivers of economic returns, inflation, growth, all that stuff, different seasons, blah, blah, blah. And so what what the S&P is dominated by is growth stocks, right? Stocks that are like eating the old economy. And S&P, the, the Dow Jones is the old economy, and the S&P is kind of in the middle, right? If you if I want to super simplify it. And so it, one of the best economic indicators of economies and what's going on are the actual stock markets, whether it be the UK stock market, the German stock market, the US stock market, the NASDAQ, the Dow, um, the S&P. I like to look at those top three, right? Because the S&P is business that do business around the world too. So it's a really good parameter of what's going on in the world. But you you look at it and you say, okay, the NASDAQ has hit new highs, but the S&P hasn't. What does that really mean? Well, if you go back and look, when all three of them are hitting new highs around the same time, that's a relatively healthy economy. But if the NASDAQ is hitting new highs, but the S&P is not confirming it and not confirming it relatively quickly, and the Dow's definitely like not even close, that is a warning sign, right? That's letting you know, huh, okay, let's go back to what Philip said. If, if growth is slowing, then in that environment, people flock to growth stocks, you know, because growth is slowing. And if you look at all the other previous bubble periods, you look at 1999, you look at the late, uh, they, they didn't have, I don't believe they had Nathic in the late 60s, in the late 60s but look at, let's look at 1999. You know, that's when NASDAQ was like killing it and S&P was going up, but not as much as NASDAQ. But but what it, what it told you was when you don't get the confirmation, then that's a warning sign that the economy is not really healthy. It's just really being driven by either investor sentiment, which is retail investors that don't know what they're doing, or money from the government printing in into a bad situation to support things. But it it's a warning sign for just saying, hey, pay attention, because if they're not confirming, that means you need to be cautious and don't run in there. And so that's the big difference. It The NASDAQ has hit new highs. The S&P and Dow has not. Consider that a warning sign and, and, and watch closely because norm, normally in a healthy economy, they hit new highs r- relatively closely and, and the S&P has yet to do that. So that's that's my two cents on that. Next question. Philip, should I be worried if I have a pension plan? This is actually like a really good question. I say all of them are good questions, but this is like a really good one because a lot of people have said, oh, this company or the government is going to guarantee me money throughout my retirement. And a guarantee is just a promise. It, if the money is not there, then they are not going to be able to fulfill the promise. And, and we're in a time period where, okay, the federal government's broke and they're, they're printing money and creating out of thin air. And then you have the, fisc- the most fiscally responsible, you have a lot of companies that are broke and they, they need to be bailed out by the governments and by the federal government and you have states that are now going broke texas one of the most fiscally responsible states the best economy like in the world and we have a hundred something billion dollar in growing deficit after all this is said and done so so what does that mean it means you know honoring pension oh, oh by the way you have the investments that pension plans invest to stocks bonds at all time low expected returns, right? Ten, ten year bond, which pension plans buy a lot of bonds, 
you know, in the U.S. are like less than 1%. In Europe, they're negative. Japan, they're negative. The stock returns of U.S. assets are low. The expected returns in other places are relatively high, but emerging markets are risky, so there's not a super high allocation to those right now for, for the most part. And, I, and, I, and I'm, I don't want to go too nerd on you, but the point is you have low expected returns, you have governments going broke, you have all these factors that say, okay, you look at those and you're like, okay, can they really meet these obligations? No. It's, it's, it's mathematically like not possible. Now, money printing might help, but you got to think about this. Let's say they print money to be able to pay the obligations, but when you print money, you make you make the value of money worth less. And if you and if you have a fixed promise, so let's say they say, "Oh, we're going to pay you five thousand dollars a month every month for as long as you live." Well, if they're printing money and the value of money is becoming worth less, that five thousand dollars can't buy what it could buy before, right? And so you're in a worrisome position because the value of that five thousand dollars a month is going down with the more money printing. And so you 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 have all these factors where there's there's not a positive for people who who own pensions. And so how it plays out, I don't really know, but I would just say if 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 a pension is going to be the bulk of what you plan to have for retirement, I would maybe rethink that. I'll make work longer, save more, you know, create your own portfolio for a big chunk of your money cuz there are things that do well in that type of environment like we mentioned on previous episodes. But but you want to be able to control that versus being subject to a promise that is going to be really hard to 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 fulfill by the by the pensions of either corporations or or governments. So that's my thoughts on those. I'll leave with a parting parting thought. It was my birthday yesterday, so feel free to if you have not liked or subscribe to the podcast on whatever platform you listen to make sure you subscribe it make sure you forward this podcast to anybody who you think would find it useful or valuable follow me on instagram and ask philip that would be a great birthday present for me i would really appreciate it if you have not done it yet please do that it would mean a whole lot to me y'all enjoy your your weekend If you are interested in having a review of your portfolio or to see how far on track you are with your retirement goals, Philip offers complimentary consults through his company, Stonehill Wealth Management. For more information, log on to StonehillWealthManagement.com forward slash talk. That's StonehillWealthManagement.com forward slash talk. Philip Washington Jr. is a registered investment advisor. Information presented is for educational purposes only and does not intend to make an offer or solicitation for the sale or purchase of any specific securities, investments, or investment strategies. Investments involve risk and, unless otherwise stated, are not guaranteed. Be sure to first consult with a qualified financial advisor and or tax professional before implementing any strategy discussed herein. Past performance is not indicative of future performance.